everybody, it's me, Peaches Christ, your old ghoul friend, and we are back with another exciting episode of the Midnight Mass Podcast. And without further ado, I am now going to introduce my fantastic co-host. He's a filmmaker, he is a writer, he is best known in the drag world as the legendary Waffles Extravaganza. Ghoul friends, it's Michael Verratti. <laughs> Hi, Peaches. Have we talked about Waffles on the podcast yet? Yeah, we did. Uh, in the Death Becomes Her episode, you mentioned Waffles to Ben and Jinx. And then the next week, I had to clarify for listeners that Waffles is kind of a nebulous character that exists more so in, in our minds than, yeah, than yeah, yeah. in actual practice. And the funny thing about that is Waffles was born on the All About Evil Tour de Fierce tour. Do you remember? That? I actually remember we were at a diner in New York. York City, and there was a dish that you ordered that was called Waffles Extravaganza, and it was like waffles topped with all sorts of, you know, whipped cream and strawberries and shit like that, right? And yeah, and your really cute friend was there. I remember he was adorable. Bear, do you remember? Yeah, Ryan Neal. I hope you're listening, Ryan. Yeah, I thought he was so adorable, and he and I and, you know, Sam and whoever else was at the table, we decided then and there that your drag name was forever going to be Waffles Extravaganza. It's such like a bizarre food title. Like, you know, like to, to name your a dish at your restaurant, Waffles Extravaganza, like it's this just like parade. And it kind of was. It was like a whole like decadent treat for sure. So I, I gladly will wear the badge of the House of Waffles because clearly there's another House of extravaganza that I'm sure want nothing to do with me. That's true. That's uh, true. It could be convi- could, could be confusing. And, and not to be confused with the House of Pancakes. You are the <laughs> House of Waffles. Now, I, I think you might be the only member, but there's still time. You need to actually do drag once. We can revisit that thought at, in a, at a later <laughs> date. But first, you know, from waffles to some deep-fried southern barbecue, and the reason yeah. we're here today is uh, really one of the greatest horror sequels of all time. So listeners, tune into that late-night FM radio and get ready to celebrate 1986's Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, directed by master of horror Toby Hooper and starring Caroline Williams, Bill Mosley, Bill Johnson, Dennis Hopper. Oh my God, Peaches, I'm so stoked to talk about this. Me too. I mean, I love all of the movies we cover, but there are certain movies that just hold a place deep, deep inside my black little heart. And this is for sure one of them. And, you know, I think really interestingly, I think you and I both feel the same way. This is definitely a movie that gets its own Midnight Mass treatment and celebration. This episode is completely dedicated to Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, and it's such a big movie in our minds. However, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original, would be is equally exciting and equally important to me, but I really see them as two separate entries with their own universe, their own style, their own tone, and we talk about that as this episode proceeds. But I think that's really unusual when you're talking about a sequel. And, and you know, I, I'm thinking about A Nightmare on Elm Street, and I'm thinking about Friday the 13th, and and how many of those movies, you know, I think of as part of a bigger whole. Whereas with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, especially the original, I don't know, it's its its, its own standalone thing. And then Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 came along and said, okay, and we're going to also be a standalone movie. It's true. And I think both of them speak to the cult fabric of the decades they were made, right? You know, ni- mm-hmm. uh, in the original... 
when the original was crafted in the 70s, it's very much this sort of cinema verite, almost documentary, gritty style response to Vietnam kind of movie. And it really hits that decade hard and terrifies a generation. And then when we return in a decade later, after a decade of silence, the buzz is back. That was the tagline, remember? When we return a decade later, we're in the middle of the decade of excess. It's the 80s. Everything's bigger and gorier and crazier. And Toby Hooper has just sat for a decade and watched a whole generation of filmmakers who were informed by Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And he knows, well, I can't just go back and do more of the same. I have to take this and kick it up to 11. And what I think is particularly interesting, and I know that you will appreciate, and I'm sure we've talked about it before, is just kind of the genesis of this movie kind of comes from a little bit of a cult place, not just because of Chainsaw Massacre. But after Chainsaw Massacre came out, there was another movie called Motel Hell that is a cult film of its own and was made sort of as a spoof of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Toby Hooper sees that and loves it so much that he decides that he's going to make a spoof of a spoof. And the original sequel concept was a script called Beyond the Valley of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which was as much a sequel to the original Chainsaw as it was a spoof of Motel Hell. And it was about a group of kids who go to a whole town that's run by cannibals and they have to survive. And for whatever reason, that movie just never materialized. And then in the interim, he makes Poltergeist and then comes back and makes Chainsaw 2. But I just love that somewhere nebulously out in the universe, there's this script beyond the valley of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which itself, of course, is sort of taking the piss out of Roger Ebert and Mm -hmm. beyond the valley of the dolls. So he knew what he was doing. And it kind of speaks to something we discussed with one of our guests about how Toby Hooper always kind of viewed these as comedies, even though they're terrifying. The first one, in my mind, while there is a, a sense of humor to it to some degree, I would never have considered it a dark comedy. And we talk about that. Now, looking back on it and rewatching it maybe through Toby's lens where, where he describes it as a comedy maybe I see it a little bit more but not really I still just kind of see it as pure unadulterated terror like it's right. just so horrific I always think about certain shots and and the feeling you get you know of the, of the the inside of that house and how effectively real it all felt and I would say with part two it's it's actually quite the opposite it, it's fantastic it's over the top it's wild the sense of humor is in the forefront of it it's still brutal it's still terrifying and I think in many ways that's why we love it as its own movie is because it strikes this chord. And at one point in one of our interviews, I I bring up Evil Dead because I think Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2 do something similar where you've got a director who's got this baby and they've made it a classic and then they kind of re-envision it and the way they re-envision it is clearly with a lot more of a sense of humor and very tongue-in-cheek. And I would say one of the big differences between Evil Dead 2 and Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is that Evil Dead 2 really, really succeeds with the comedy and the wildness and the uh, vision, but isn't necessarily scary. I wouldn't say that I was terrified when I saw Evil Dead 2, but I loved it. Don't get me wrong, Obsessed, such a good movie. But I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, especially maybe because of the age I was at, not only did I get that it was funny, but it still fucking scared me. Like, I was still scared. And that whole opening sequence with the guys driving, so shocking, so effective. The takeover of the radio station, just brutal. 
brutal and just terrifying while also being hilarious. You know, you've got the chainsaw in the crotch moment, which to me was almost unwatchably suspenseful and, and just so so scary, mixed with Bill Mosley yelling, Leatherface, you fucked up my Sonny Bono wig. <laughs> Fucking hilarious. I don't know that we could have gotten two better more exciting guests to interview for this topic than these people. Kind of the mode at Midnight Mass is we try and get someone involved in the movie as well as a artist who is inspired by the film or a super fan or an obsessed devotee. But this week, because Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is such a well-curated film with such stunning performances that have made this movie legendary, we couldn't help but get not one but two of the leads from the film Caroline Williams, who plays Stretch, and Bill Mosley, who plays Chop Top, and they both are joining us for separate conversations this week to talk about their trajectory of this film's amazing legacy. What's really great, too, though, is when we talk to Bill, Bill's involvement in the film came from a fandom of the original movie, so it still kind of speaks to that cult devotion in kind of the coolest possible way. And through both of their lenses, I think I, I gained an even deeper appreciation of this movie, which is a movie I already loved so, so very much. We love these two guests. We are huge fans of them, and they could not have been more generous or more insightful. Talk about two smart people. I mean, these are smart actors. You know, they yeah. their insight on the phenomenon of this film and the cult of this film, and just, just being like lovely smart, generous people with their fans just has us beside ourselves on this episode. We're going to kick things off with perhaps one of the most unique, original scream queens in the annals of horror. It's the fabulous Caroline Williams. talk about today's movie without this next guest. She is, of course, horror royalty. She has starred in such movies as Leprechaun 3, Stepfather 2, Hatchet 3, the recent 10 Minutes to Midnight, and outside of the genre has been in movies like Alamo Bay and Days of Thunder and worked with directors from Louis Maul to Rob Zombie. And of course, she is the legendary Caroline Williams star of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Welcome, Caroline. Thank you so much. This is so special for me because... I know you and love you, Michael. You're one of my favorite writers. Peaches is a, a, an icon-ass. And uh, this is kind of a big moment for me. So I'm super excited about it. Well, I'm so stoked to have you here, as I know Peaches is as well. And I think the best way to jump into this episode and talk about this longstanding legacy of, of Chainsaw 2 is to go back to the beginning. You know what I'm about to ask, because this is one of those stories that you've unfortunately, or fortunately, had to tell many, many times. But I think it sets the tone for your journey on this movie. And that's your legendary audition for this film. And would you mind highlighting for those who don't know? just what that was. It's a great, great story. Um, it wasn't necessarily self-inspired. I had read accounts of various actors who'd taken extraordinary risks in the audition room and with directors and gotten cast. 
And I had thought to myself, I really want this. I want this to work. I want this to happen. I had gotten very physical in the audition for Legend of Billie Jean the year before I read for this one. In Legend of Billie Jean, I'm a girl in the truck, and we're barreling along the freeway, and my boyfriend's going to shoot Billie Jean, and the truck rolls over, and I have to crawl out from under the wreckage and, you know, do my Billie Jean thing. Um, and in that audition, I'm sitting in the chair, and they were reading us two at a time, boy in truck, girl in truck, right? Sitting in the chair, and I'm, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm doing this shit. And when it came time for the truck to roll over, I rolled over. I rolled <laughs> over with the chair and I crawled out from under the chair and that was it. So I felt like taking risks as an actor, especially in the market where I was in Texas, where opportunity was few and far between. I had absolutely nothing to lose. Plus, as I've said before, the script was not dialogue. The script was action. She's running, screaming down the hallway. She turns around, she goes into the ice house, she slams the door, she grabs a weapon, they live on fear, they live on fear. That's it, right? And all the girls that were going in long hallway and casting office down at the end of the hallway, all the girls walk in, they walk out, they walk in, they walk out. Dead silence. I mean, you'd, I, you know, there was nothing. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do this. And I told the casting director, I'm going to run in working. Just have them tell them to be ready. And I went to the end of the long hallway and ran screaming down the hallway as loudly as I could so that whoever was in there would hear me, you know, and no, here I'm coming. Here I come. <laughs> and I busted into the room and there's Toby and Kit sitting in chairs and I drop to my hands and knees and I crawl over and I make it very clear I'm taking your chair. <laughs> I took both chairs and I stacked them up against the door and I got up and I crabbed over to the corner of the room and I did They Live on Fear, They Live on Fear. And Toby and Kit didn't have any place to sit. They just kind of slowly walked toward me. And I couldn't tell if it was a good walking toward me or a bad walking <laughs> toward me. But they walked right up to me while I did my little thing. I love that story. And I love that that's the genesis for this incredible, iconic performance. Before I go any further, Caroline, I just have to say that I am having a total fangirl moment um, <laughs> because, uh, I mean, and Michael knows this. Uh, my my partner really puts up with a lot because he, he actually... He's from Turkey. He didn't grow up watching horror movies. You know, he he understands me. He appreciates my interests. And through my eyes, he's learned to appreciate things. But uh, I have to say, I have um, hanging in my apartment and have had it there for years above the TV as the focal point of my living room, a giant poster that an artist did. It's a print of you. Um, and and it's sort of like you're you're. Your legs are open and Toby and Leatherface are clashing chainsaws in front of you. And, you know, it, 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 you, you are like the star of one of my favorite, favorite movies. And the reason it's one of my favorite movies is because of you and your performance and, and how unique, what a unique um, uh, performance you, you brought to this, you know, this sort of uh, 
um, scream queen, you know, community where we, we have all these different um, characters and, and women who've played them, but no one quite like stretch. I don't think you could say there's been another um, scream queen quite like stretch. And I just wonder like, how does it feel all these years later from that audition to, you know, shooting it, to the movie coming out. Of course, we know uh, the movie had mixed reactions when it came out, to then really finding over the years, especially on video, like with kids like me, a rabid fan base of obsessed fans. How does that feel to know that you're hanging in my living room? (laughs) When you showed me that art on your wall, I was so touched and I was so moved because our fan base, it's not like the Halloween fan base or the Friday fan base or the Nightmare fan base. Those were much bigger releases. They made more money and they got more boom. But we are a funny little neighborhood in the horror world. I love the strange and kind of exclusive territory that we occupy, which I did not know about until 2007. I didn't know there were horror conventions. I know they had autograph shows, but they had cowboys and cops and Marcus Welby and you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Over there, the Ray Court, those autograph shows. I had no idea. I was very busy being a mom and a wife and my life was about that. But 2007 rolled around and I got this phone call about going to do these shows. And that's when I learned and, and saw firsthand, what the fuck? I, I <laughs> Honestly, I, was, I, I walk in and I'm basically doing housewife mommy thing. I don't even have an identity as an actress anymore. And it was only when I began doing those conventions that I felt that flame flicker again. In discovering that fan community, you know, you have been working quite consistently since 2007, you've made a lot of movies, you've rediscovered your fan base. And one of the things we like to talk about on Midnight Mass is how these kind of movies are different. There are people who love Kramer versus Kramer, but they're not dressing up as those people. As far as we know, there might be some (laughs) some, like hidden drama (laughs) convention and they're not getting these Mondo posters or tattoos. So just tell me a little bit about your engagement with the Chainsaw fan base. What's what's the craziest thing that you've seen in your space? There's always a new craziest thing whenever (laughs) I go to a show. There's always a new craziest thing. Because the invention and creativity of the horror community, like you said, it's different from your standard studio films. Most of the people within our fan base are creators themselves or want to be. And the thing is, horror gives you a universe to play in that you're not going to find with standard studio films. You're just not going to find it. There's a passion. There's an imagination. There are no breaks there. You can unleash your id. You can offend people. You can piss them off. You can scare them. You can provoke them. That's part of the reason I love the genre so much is that we are able to go places. We give ourselves permission to go places that you're not going to find in any other art, literature, music, fashion. We're a universe unto ourselves. Right. That's what makes it so attractive and interesting. On the one hand, I love the fan base. You do get into the scary stuff sometimes, which I haven't experienced only very recently, only very recently. There are people for whom that fantasy curtain has evaporated. Usually there's sort of a, I don't even know if this is the right term, professional distance between an actor and the fans. They know the difference between the actor and 
the character. But every once in a while, you get into that strange nether world, you know, which has been the subject of movies, frankly, The Fan and Poison Ivy and and uh, and, and stuff like that. So Even real life news stories. I mean, that that's the other thing, right? Like we know there have been fans, you know, oh, well, my God, Jodie Foster, you know, she, yeah. she really dealt with that. And um, we actually did an interview earlier in our podcast series with Adrian King, who had a, a horrible experience, you know, um, after Friday the 13th. And so, and of course, being uh, friends with Cassandra Peterson and knowing what she's gone through as Elvira and also- Danielle Harris. Danielle Harris. I think we all agree, if you're in the genre world and and at all someone that that has fans, I mean, it's so so great to, to think that I have fans at all. Like, that's just so wild to me. The vast majority of them are people you'd want to have lunch with and and that you, you enjoy and want to hang out with. But it makes yes. sense, you know, to kind of keep a healthy separation because there is that few who, let's face it, mental illness is running rampant, regardless of who we are or where we are. Like, it's just a real issue. And so they may misplace some energy toward you that is misdirected and unwelcome and scary. I've gained a lot of followers over the last year. Mm. And there's been a nice rush of them just in the last few months because of 10 minutes to midnight. I mean, I was given a heads up by one of our peers. Hey, you need to know this. This guy has been in touch with me and he's got material about you. And I'm just letting you know. Mm. And that's never happened to me before. So it's a little bit of a different angle. But I will tell you, uh, I just did a convention a few weeks ago up in Gettysburg, PA. The mosquitoes were, oh my God. <laughs> But the fans were off the charts. Fantastic. I had the time of my life going into town and checking things out and meeting people. And I met writers, painters, tattoo artists, fashion designers, musicians, directors, actors. Uh, You meet the entire gamut. And all they're looking for is to find new inspirations, hear your stories, get encouragement. More than anything, they want to just get encouragement. You know, because our universe is controversial. Mm. We've got a very controversial edge to our world. And there are people who do not want people to go there. If you're a creator, creative trying to break into our business, it it can be discouraging. You talk about how there is that resistance or the idea that this treads into controversial territory. And we didn't really so much get a chance to talk about this with Adrian, but I'm curious your take because there is kind of for an actor, a blessing and a curse to be in a movie of this kind, right? Of course, it's got the longevity. But when you star in a movie like Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which is known to the outside world as as a gore fest or whatever term they want to throw at it, did that affect the tone of the kind of things that you were sent out for that you were able to get afterwards or? Absolutely. I could not get representation here in LA when I first arrived in town. And because the movie opened so quickly, we wrapped and the next thing you know, we're in theaters. And I had a narrow window of opportunity, two months to pack up my things, sell everything, get you all drive across country. I got here You know, there were certainly some people that were interested in helping me that thought that they could help me get some representation. I was having a horrible time getting anything going. It wasn't until I ran into Dennis Hopper one night. I think I was at a restaurant, a nightclub, something, but I ran into him 
And he, you know, we got into a little bit of a conversation, asked me how I was doing, bragged about me to his friends that he was with that particular evening. I said, I can't get anybody to have a meeting with me. He said, I'll walk you into my agency tomorrow. And he did. And I got wrapped. That's amazing. One of the many gifts of Dennis. Dennis was not a cloying, affectionate, smiley guy, but I knew he liked me and respected me. And I knew he wanted to see me have a career. He got me a membership to Helena's nightclub, which was the Basharama joint over in the Rampart district, built out of cinder block, had a retractable canvas roof. On a cold night, the steam would rise out of there like it was hell. You know, you were walking into <laughs> hell. And I met every celebrity, everybody. I mean, the Hollywood A-list spent all their time there. It was the coolest joint in the world. And he got me a membership and I didn't have to pay for it. I think at the time it was like 500 bucks. He was always mm. generous and kind, always. That is so great to know because it's a bummer when you love these movies because when you find out that people didn't get along or they don't <laughs> like each other, you know, because that is actually more normal than the alternative, which is that everyone turns into one big happy family. I always say, wow, if you made a movie together and you're still friends, like that's a really solid friendship. <laughs> because it's so hard and so stressful. And it really, you see the worst sides of people while making a movie. So I love that story. And I want to say that I think Dennis Hopper is really interesting, you know, as far as this film goes, because he's surrounded by people who are, you know, let's face it, lesser known and had less experience than he did when, when he made this movie. But with a director who's had some really huge successes uh, at this point in his career. And I love that they both decide to to make this very strange film. I mean, very, very strange tonally and a, a strange departure from the original. I just have to give you so much credit because you are, and this is why I think Dennis loved you and, and would be why I would guess that he was impressed by your talent. You're the anchor of this film. The entire film kind of hinges on your performance. And basically, I was watching it. I rewatched it um, just, just in pre preparation for meeting you. And I was thinking, God, she's brilliant because every single character, every single character is an insane clown in this film <laughs> in a wonderful way. I mean, it, it, you know, there isn't, you know, from the, the from the preppy guys at the beginning with, with you know, to, to LG, to, you know, Lefty, and of course the Sawyer family, they're just all insane. And Stretch is the person you have to go on this journey with. And so kudos to you for uh, really doing such a brilliant job because none of us would would watch the movie over and over and over again if it weren't for your performance you are so kind and i so appreciate that one of the things you got to remember about dennis at the time a couple of things uh dennis's drug addiction had driven him into poverty he lost all mm. of his money um second thing is we inherited him from david lynch and blue velvet so he was very much living in our neighborhood at the time that he showed up. Um, I have an amazing uh, bit of tape. I think it's about two minutes from CNN. They came and interviewed everybody on our set and they interviewed Dennis. And Dennis was fully in character talking about who being him, being his character, you know, being lefty when CNN interviewed him. And it's a priceless bit of tape because you see Tom Savini, you see Toby, 
Bill, me, everybody. CNN covered the waterfront on our little story. And my son found it. He's a mega fan and he's my biggest fan. And he sent it to me. And it's a treasure, this thing. I'll put it back up again because it's so jazzy. I felt lucky to be a part of such a crazy quilt of characters that I knew would fully keep the audience engaged throughout the entire film. My only hesitation was the scene with Saw in the ice bucket. Man, we got beaten up so badly by that. Feminists were outraged. And there I am with the saw in between my legs and it's touching me and it looks like a dick. And it's sexual imagery with a healthy heaping of, of violence thrown in. What I liked about the character of Stretch is she manages to mitigate that. She manages to work around that. You know, she's so honed in on the psychology of Leatherface. She manages to work that moment. I'm glad that you bring it up because I wanted to discuss it. Um, and <laughs> as, as someone who, you know, loves, loves, loves horror, is, a, you know, a drag performer and also was a women's studies minor, you know, there's this this sort of like um, thing where I think we, we, we know that movies have problematic imagery. Certainly 80s horror movies have a ton of homophobia and transphobia and misogyny. And I always argue, though, is, shocking as that image was. And I remember being a kid and, and knowing how vulnerable, like just knowing how awful that was. In fact, there were two scenes that I had to stop on a VHS player when I was a kid because I was so scared by what I was seeing. And it's interesting. I just had this realization right now. The two that I really strongly remember are, are the, the saw moment with you and your legs. I stopped it because my mind was racing toward what could have happened, right? And I couldn't handle playing it forward. I, I saw that movie for the first time at home on a, on a VHS tape. And the other one was the first Nightmare on Elm Street when Freddy's claw comes up between her legs in the bathroom. And so I'm realizing... Those are very similar moments, you know, where you put women in this very vulnerable position. It's nudity. In both cases, you've got women, Nancy and Stretch, especially Stretch, who use their attractiveness to their advantage in a very clever way. And there's this bizarre thing with Leatherface where it's almost like you can't tell if he's reacting to her as sort of a mother figure. He's such a child. It's bizarre the way they present the sexuality because you don't really even know what you're supposed to be experiencing. So first of all, was that was it written in the script that way? Oh, yeah. And then what was it like shooting it? And I mean, because it is, it is so memorable. They gave me panties to wear. Little wow. red panties with black roses and hearts. So I had panties for that. The thing is, human beings are primitive. And I don't care how you dress us up and our wonderful vocabularies and the music we love in restaurants, blah, blah, blah. Human beings are primitive. We're primitive at our core. Our reactions and responses are sometimes, they arise unbidden. It's like when you sleep, mm -hmm. when you're in a dream state, anything goes. And I believe female sexuality, especially sexuality overall, female sexuality most of all, is the pivot, is the absolute ground zero of all mythology. Mm. Because women make babies. Women create life. Women are the life givers. So we're supposed to be this very singular kind of being. In horror, women are not that singular kind of being. Neither are men. The right. exploration of human sexuality that can happen within the horror genre is part of what makes it attractive. It's part of what makes LGBTQ horror, my representation in my film, you really don't know where it's gonna take you 
And it's a scary place and it's a controversial, provocative place, but it's also a place that I like because where can you take the story from there? Mm -hmm. And it's always about the story and it's always about exploring human experience, who we are. We're not great. We're animals. We're freaking animals, man. And uh, that chainsaw moment reaches its absolute fulfillment in the Terrifier film. My dear friend, Catherine Corcoran. Okay, if there's something that women want to hate about that scene, they absolutely have something to hate. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's not like that scene hasn't happened to a man before because it has. Yeah. Sexuality is a nuclear bomb and it's just waiting to go off. And it doesn't matter what your sexual identity or preference or whatever. That little bomb is ready to go off. And the best writers know how to deal with that. The best directors know how to use that. I really love this academic approach to the genre because you know as well as I do, some people get an acting job, they do it, and then they probably don't think about it once it's done. But you have clearly spent a lot of time thinking about how the genre informs both the audience and yourself. Chainsaw was your first horror film, right? I think so, yes. Can I ask then, you've clearly thought about this a lot. Would you say that your relationship with horror has changed over the years as you've been examining it and like having these internal conversations? Absolutely. They're not necessarily internal conversations because the conversations, the journalism within the horror genre is so extraordinary. And the analysis and the study of it is always ongoing. One of the people that's been most instructive to me is Joe Bob Briggs. Actually, John Bloom is how I think of him. Reading all of his various takes on horror. Of course, you've got Dread Central, you've got Rue Morgue, you've got Fango, you've got all these various magazines where a broad array of writers are constantly taking a look at horror and analyzing it. There's always a new movie that inspires a new journalistic angle from within our community where you go, oh, I hadn't thought of that before. There's a level of originality to our genre because it is provocative, because, like I said, the brakes are off. People let their scary ideas and thoughts out to romp around and, and, and play, you know? I think that's why our genre is now pretty much the number one, even straight stories on television, police dramas, medical dramas, they're working in horror angles and scary angles. True crime, the biggest trend in television right now. If you think about the fact that we're in this sort of post-pandemic, is cinema going to survive sort of mode, you know? But if you look at what's been popular on the streaming platforms, certainly horror is huge. I mean, just the sheer amount of horror, the horror narrative TV shows, documentaries about horror, true crime, and sort of the darkness of the subject matter. And we knew that, you know, the Marvel movies and the superhero movies were going to be our best bet at coming back, you know, at the box office. But I love, 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 love that Candyman was, number one, a woman of color directed it. And it's such a great movie. And it's like we are a genre and we are fans who want to see our genre evolve and change and new stories be told. And I think the genre, I mean, as a kid from the 80s who was a member of this genre and felt very alone, you know, being queer, you know, being an outsider, you know, especially being one of the maybe the first drag queen to go to horror conventions, you know, 
way back in the, you know, the early 2000s, that there's been a, a total shift with all of this stuff. I love the way that you put that. I think it's so, so well said. I wanted to ask you though about Toby, because as much as he gets credit, I think he's still very underrated as far as one of the great, great, great directors go. And it kind of pisses me off as a fan. Well, first of all, I love his cameo in this film. I think, you know, (laughs) it's so, so sweet. And I think it kind of speaks to the spirit with which he made the movie because clearly he was interested in making a dark comedy, you know? And what was it like working with him? What was he like? I mean, you worked with this legendary filmmaker, you know, who's responsible for, you know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Poltergeist and, you know, and also, I, I love you know if you if you go back and watch Funhouse and, and sort of see the the, the way Funhouse yeah and how it plays out in this film you know and Life Force, um, Life, and yes. Life Force. Oh my God, yes. Yeah, I think in many ways Toby's choices were you referred to it earlier the competitive nature of show business and how difficult mm-hmm. it is to have friends and how difficult it is to find your territory and plant your flag and defend that territory, right? Toby, and I've said this in interviews before, he ended up delivering very inconsistently because of the lack of enthusiasm and cooperation that he got from the Hollywood community when he first came here. There was a lot of envy and jealousy, partly because Steven Spielberg was in love with him, was in love with him from the time he was a kid and had first seen the original Chainsaw. The fact that Steven gave him Poltergeist to direct, all the gossip and innuendo and slander and all the horrible stuff that was said about him in relationship to that film, that has continued to this day. It became difficult for him to score the kind of budgets where he really could have made a strong impression. And you can see the proof of it with Life Force. This is just me. Toby was a little bit Asperger's. Toby's Mm. world was a visual world. Toby's stories were visual stories. Toby didn't want to get into a lot of chit chat. Toby wanted, don't say it, show it. That was Toby's style. That was supposed to be the ideal cinematic style from the beginnings of film. It's moved into a lot of other different things, which is fine. Toby had a visual style. Toby's mind was a camera. And as he went along, the challenges of the business itself, I think, became a little too much for him. If you've heard any interviews or read any interviews with Mick Garris, Mick was incredibly close to him. They were twin beings in a way. They understood one another in such a terrific way. Mick got Toby as no one else ever got to, as I never got Toby. He was not warm. He was not affectionate necessarily, but he was the odd kid in class. And if you took the time to play with him and invite him to your part of the playground, then you got to find out what he was about. I deeply regret that the end of his life happened the way that it did. It's heartbreaking to me. His final movie was Jen. I haven't seen it yet. His son has promised me on more than one occasion that he will get a Blu-ray to me. (laughs) I would Mm -hmm. love to have somebody organize a a screening. But one of the weird things, the Mercury retrograde things about Toby's career is trying to get releases, permissions. So many of his films got all bollocked up in the machinery of the business that you couldn't see them. And Jen is one of those films. There's a level of frustration that goes with him. One of the big topics and themes of Midnight Mass that we do is we talk about legacy. And of course, you know, talking about Chainsaw 2, we can't not talk about Toby's legacy. What's interesting when considering this particular film, though, is that it is a sequel to a film that had already had such a massive fingerprint on the genre that it did 
inspire people like Steven Spielberg. It changed the conversation. And so, you know, sometimes we'll have guests on and talk about the cult movies that they made and ask them these questions. Like, did you ever suspect that 20, 30, 40 years later, you'd still be talking about this movie? (laughs) But in your case, Chainsaw 2 was made a decade after the original Chainsaw and people were already talking about it. So was kind of the thought going into the movie a little bit different? Was there a part of you that was like, okay, this is a continuation of a legacy. And is that a heavy burden to bear going into? It was not for me because I remember getting a copy of the script. I was living in Houston, Texas. I had done serious films, industrials, commercials, you know, that kind of thing. I remember when I got a copy of the script and we weren't supposed to have a copy of the script. We were only supposed to have sides. I got a copy of the script and I read it and I thought, what the hell is going on here? (laughs) But given the original and the true terror of the original, because it was freaking scary, man, more cinema verite than what had been written in Chainsaw 2. But it was also a romp. And the thing is, there were so many scenes we weren't able to get to. The character of TV dinner is classic. The conversation about the relationship between Lefty and Vanita's mother gives an absolute clue that Lefty's her dad. There's so much in the original script that we did not get to shoot. And it was because Canon Films, that very adversarial relationship that people know now, he was cutting Invaders from Mars while we were shooting Chainsaw. He was operating on four hours of sleep a night, which frankly, Mm. I don't think bothered him too much because he had that kind of mind. I don't think that was necessarily a stopper for him. I loved the character. I knew that it was Toby Hooper. I knew it was going to get eyeballs. I knew it was going to get publicity. From a purely professional standpoint, it was definitely the right move for me. The thing was clinching it because they were reading people in LA, New York. They had already set up shop. It was so much light gone with the wind. You know, they're ready to shoot the burning of Atlanta and they had no scarlet. And it was kind of the same thing. They were ready to roll. And, um, and then that fateful audition happened. And Literally within days, they brought me back to Austin and I didn't go home again until July 5th. Wow. Yeah. Met Tom Savini for the first time. Uh, Met Bill Mosley for the first time. Bill Johnson. The fact that Bill Johnson was a fellow Texan was wonderful. Can I just say about Bill Johnson, since we probably won't get to talk too much about him uh, more in this interview, what people need to understand about Bill Johnson, who plays Leatherface in this movie, is he has one of the best speaking voices I have ever heard in my entire life, and he does not talk at all in this movie. (laughs) I know. And the other irony is both he and Bill Mosley are two of the best educated human beings on the planet. They were educated in the classics. They know art, literature, culture, you name it. These guys are well-versed in everything. The brain power that they brought to this film, so impressive for something that's such a crazy romp. Bill Johnson, he was resting in between shots. He would be doing little soliloquies and stuff from Shakespeare. Oh my God, that is hilarious to picture in that mask. Yes. Bill Mosley had been a writer for Psychology Today, the New York Times, various other publications. Strangely enough, I don't think he's ever written anything about horror or this film for any major journalistic outlets. You know, now that we have the 35th anniversary, boy, would it be timely for Bill to just... Yeah, for sure. It'd be fun. Well, we'll have to we'll have to ask him about that for sure. Michael, you you actually just reminded me of something I wanted to ask Caroline about because it is great to know that Bill Johnson had such a, a great speaking voice. But as far as someone 
really convincing me that they are a radio DJ with a radio voice. I'm wondering, where did that come from? Did you do special rehearsals? Did you listen to radio 80s radio DJs? Because it is so spot on the money. Like your radio voice is so great. I started my career doing voiceover in Texas. And it was mostly for the Texas market. Every once in a while, I get a national or, or something like that. I learned, I had obviously taken acting lessons and they trained me and how to sound like somebody from the national news and, and have the dialect, don't have the dialect. So I was really ready to play a DJ. I knew how to do it. And it was one of the more fun aspects of the film, you know, getting to play this girl. It makes the character very uh, likable, like right from the start. Like the voice is so warm and soothing and you just like her so much. Okay, and and, and I know we're wrapping things up, but I, I don't want to wrap up before asking this question. As a performer who struggles with keeping myself beautiful at all times, I have to say to the listeners, you, you don't see Caroline the way I'm seeing her because we're actually doing uh, this interview over Zoom. You've maintained your looks for all these 35 years, the 30 35th anniversary. How how is it that you look so fresh and glowing and in the same? You know, you just look so beautiful. What's your beauty secret? There are reasons for that. <laughs> <laughs> that I'll tell you off camera. Okay, okay. Fair Honestly, enough. I've been completely clean and sober for 37 years on September 29th. Ah, we have that in common, although not a, I'm not as long as you. If you want your skin. To look good, you got to really treat it right and you got to do all the right stuff. And the second thing is, as I was going through my marriage and my motherhood and, and things like that, that's a very difficult job. My life as those things was very difficult. My husband was gone all the time. Reason I'm divorced. Mm. My older child is autistic, very high functioning. I was very, very blessed, but it put me into a world and then I have my second child who currently is at Berkeley. So, oh. yeah, my autistic son lives in a group home. He's got a job, very social, loves to go to Dark Dells, loves to come to the events and, and mix and mingle. Michael has met him. He's charming and funny and great and uh, loves everybody who is a part of my life. But it's a very isolating experience. Four years ago, I just said to myself, my kids are grown. They're settled. I have to have something for myself. And I will tell you, Nothing will return your youthful vigor than getting back out on my own. Has it been challenging? Yes. Do I feel a little scared sometime? Is there financial insecurity? Yes, it's all those things. But I love that I got to come back to the world that I love as fully as I can. I love the life I'm living right now. I really do. Nothing will bring you back to life than starting a new life. 10 Minutes to Midnight also reflects that. Here's a woman who made specific choices. Some of those choices are coming back on her now. But I understood that character in a way that I wouldn't have if I hadn't made the moves that I've made over the last four or five years. Where can listeners find 10 Minutes to Midnight? We are streaming on Amazon. We're on Tubi. And we're about to break open on a Comcast network. I wish I could remember the name of it, but I can't. Tubi, of course, you've got some ads, but you get to see it for free. Amazon, you can stream it. We are also out on DVD and Blu-ray. We're for sale at your local store, wherever you buy your physical content. We will have our last festival gasp 
at Shriekfest, October 2nd on the Raleigh Studios lot. We're going to screen at 8 p.m. You'll get to see the movie in a full theater environment with surround sound and the whole thing. We've got some amazing music in our film by Wednesday 13, Barrier Dead. I'm so proud of this film. I'm proud of Eric Bloomquist and his brother Carson Bloomquist. We had an amazing cast and crew. It's really a feather in my cap to have this film. And tied back to Chainsaw Massacre, your character's profession in 10 Minutes to Midnight is a radio DJ. As you mentioned, the screening at Raleigh Studios, you know what famous movie was shot at Raleigh Studios, and that was Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Oh. Are you kidding me? No, so. I have not read this in any of my books. Speaking of whatever happened to Baby Jane, I'm just going to throw this out there. If there were (laughs) any writer who would be able to do a Robert Aldrich, Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, it's the 50s. Let's scare the fuck out of people. It's Michael Verratti. That's true. So much. I appreciate that. That's so no pressure. And I do have (laughs) to say it is something I aspire to. I don't want to be part of a massive cast. But to have another actress that that I have a nice comfort zone with, and most of them I know and like and think are phenomenal, to be able to do something like Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, Baby Jane, Dead Ringer, to, to be able to do something like that would be a dream come true. Well, that, that's one to look for in the future for sure. Caroline, I just have to thank you so, so much, not only for coming on the podcast, but also just for being so uh, open. And I love the way we're wrapping things up. Like, I'm so happy as a fan of yours to hear you say that you love your life. It makes me happy. And I'm really genuinely glad to hear that. You know, you've done so many extraordinary things in addition to being, you know, a cult film icon at this point, like being a mom and a wife and getting to this place where you get to enjoy this part of your life. It makes me so happy. And I look forward to meeting you in person. Yes. I've done a Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 event at Midnight Mass. I'll have to send you photos of myself as Peaches with the chop top hat. I hope we can do, (laughs) all of us can do an event together. Yes. Uh, Whether you are being Peaches or not being Peaches, I just want to be able to see you live in the living color and hug you and spend some time finding more about your life and your journey. Thank you. Because one of the things I've said before, and I've got to say it again, having grown up within a heavily gay community in the Montrose area of Houston, the LGBTQ wave is going to be bringing in a new level of creativity and productivity that's going to be a lot, I believe, like the French new wave. There are some really innovative, interesting, amazing writers and directors and actors out there. And I'm really eager to see where that product takes us and be a part of it. Michael and I are collaborating on a few scripts. So I have a feeling like we'll get to do a show together in the future. We'll make a movie together. You know, we just, we'll just have to do it. Just call me Joan. (laughs) (laughs) We have to, we have to find our Betty. Yes. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Caroline. You know, I love you and it was a pleasure and it's always a joy. I loved it. I loved every single minute. Thank you so much for including me. I love being a part of your world. Crazy, crazy mama, she drives me insane.
And that was our interview with the amazing Caroline Williams. You know, Peaches, I got to work with Caroline a number of years ago on an anthology horror film that I co-wrote called Tales of Poe, and she's in the segment of the film that I wrote. And it was really a treat for me, and I know that you've had this experience, too, where you get to work with with people you grew up watching and idolizing. From that movie, I've I've forged a friendship with Caroline, and I've, I've interacted with her a lot over the years. And every time I get to sit with her in one of these kind of conversations, she always displays such a deep appreciation not only for her involvement in this film but like a very very reflective consideration for its themes you know and not every actor does that after they leave a project and the fact that she's been sitting with this movie for 35 years and thinking so deeply about it I think is really something special she gets it she gets why people are attached to it a lot of folks make these movies and don't actually know the impact they've had on our cult minds lives right like they know there are fans out there maybe they know that people enjoyed the movie maybe but sometimes it takes a while for them to actually be put in touch with people who can express to them how much their performance and the movie itself has meant to them. And and I love that Caroline Williams is getting to enjoy the knowledge now after some time not really being in touch with her fans. She gets to enjoy the knowledge now that like, oh no, we horror fans, we honor you, we love you, we think you're great. And truly that performance and the character of Stretch was made iconic because of Caroline Williams. And she knows now. She gets to know that. Absolutely. And, you know, just the the depth of kind of theory that she applies to it, which I think is, yeah. is super great. And it, it made me laugh because, uh, you know, she was sitting there talking about Bill... Mosley and Bill Johnson, like coming at things while they were on set with such an academic approach. Meanwhile, she's speaking so academically herself. And I think that that's proof to power of just this cast and their total appreciation of this movie. Let's face it, horror fans are just better and horror (laughs) people are just smarter. And I say that with all (laughs) complete sincerity. Maybe someone can study why that is. I think there is sort of this sense that, you know, horror fans for years have been presented by the mainstream as, you know, being sick or something's wrong with us or, you know, maybe that we're dumb or, you know, we're Beavis and Butthead or whatever, you know, like there's these stereotypes. But in fact, when you really look deeper, that's not the case at all. You know, dark subject matter, gothic subject matter, more uncomfortable themes do appeal to people who are just smarter. So you listeners out there just know that you're just better than everyone else. That's the the message we want you to take home. If if you're a fan of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, you're a superior being. Um, Now, we're talking about how um, Caroline colored this performance in such a unique way that she made it iconic. And that is undoubtedly true. But there's another actor in this film who did the same thing with a different role. And certainly the character of Chop Top is, you know, I mean, you, you've got Leatherface and Bill did an incredible job with his wiggles and jiggles. I love the way he did Leatherface. Like Absolutely. The, the, dan- the dancing alone, the, the gyrating, is just incredible. But he doesn't get to talk, right? He doesn't get to, uh, you know, he has to do everything through sort of this this mime performance. But Bill Mosley as Chop Top is really a standout star in this film. And so it's so exciting that we got to talk to Caroline, but we also get to talk to Bill. We're going to meet Bill Mosley right now. The sun goes down and the moon comes up 
Welcome back, listeners. It's a dark and stormy night here in Los Angeles, which is a perfectly fitting ambiance to welcome our next guest. Horror royalty and an unquestionable icon of fright, you know him not only for his groundbreaking role as Chop Top in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, but as the star of House of a Thousand Corpses, The Devil's Rejects, Repo the Genetic Opera, and the recent Prisoners of the Ghostland. Please welcome actor, musician, and legend, Bill Mosley. Yay! Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show, Bill. Of course, you know, we're here to celebrate Texas Chainsaw 2, as well as your amazing career. And just to kick things off, I had heard that you actually were involved in another Texas Chainsaw project before Chainsaw 2, and that was the Texas Chainsaw Manicure. Could you tell us about that? Absolutely. First of all, nice to be here. And, and more, more than groundbreaking, I, I prefer skull breaking. But, uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, the old claw hammer. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, yes, you know, nice to be here with you both. And um, hello out there in movie land or wherever <laughs> wherever it is out there. Thank God for the uh, the rain here in, in Los Angeles. Yeah. Uh, quite spectacular. My dog is still huddled and panting in the corner because uh, she doesn't do loud noise as well. Uh, but anyway, yes, uh, back in, well, let's see, back in uh, 1984, I was spending a summer working on a ranch. I lived in New York City where I was a freelance writer, but I was uh, spending the summer, uh, you know, I'd been to the Mud Club and uh, to uh, Studio 54 a little too much, smoking too many cigarettes and, you know, staying out late. So I took myself to a ranch in Wyoming the Boxar Ranch in uh, outside of uh, Cora, Wyoming, which population like seven or eight. Um, anyway, I was I was a ranch hand and I was, you know, digging ditches and doing all kinds, shoeing horses, stuff like that. And um, I had a co-worker, a, a guy named John Wright. He was uh, 16 years old. Uh, John, that's a Wright with a W. And uh, he was an adopted kid. Uh, his parents were... Uh, undertakers in uh, Geneseo, Illinois. And uh, they had sent this kid out uh, to the ranch, you know, to make a man of him, I guess, for the summer or whatever. Uh, well, he was a sugar freak and um, really loved, I would start the day with uh, bug juice and frosted flakes and mellow yellow. And <laughs> he would then move on to fudge sickles. Whatever. You know, he was like, wow. He was destined, destined for a 12-step program, I think. But anyway, <laughs> uh, he would, uh, then he would, you know, you know, pound the sugar and then come out, uh, you know, and we would work. We were the, the grunts of the ranch, so we would be digging stuff and doing manual labor under that hot Wyoming sun. And uh, he would go into what I called sugar deliriums. I mean, as we worked side by side, he would start, you know, going, ah, Captain Crunch, Captain Crunch, and singing top 40 songs, snippets, cartoon voices, commercials, jingles. And I, most of the time I wanted to just smack him with a shovel, but you know, not, I, I didn't. <laughs> anyway, and I would be mostly turn a deaf ear to him. And then one day we we're digging or shoveling or scraping, whatever we were doing. And, um, and then he, all of a sudden he was going like, Captain Crunch, Captain Crunch. And then all of a sudden he said, Texas Chainsaw Manicure. <laughs> and then went back to Captain Crush. And I, I was like, it, it was like a bolt of lightning. I, literally, I was like, whoa, what? What? And it just struck me. And I went back to the bunkhouse and I uh, wrote out a five-minute scenario of a woman goes to a beauty parlor, you know, gets her hair done, sitting under the dryer, 
beautician comes up, what do you want? She goes, uh, I think I'll have a manicure. And, you know, that was kind of the basis of the idea. So I got back to New York City. I, I wrote out the Texas Chainsaw Manicure. I got my buddy, Lori Frank, who uh, directed the Texas Chainsaw Manicure. I was the writer producer. And we took over Sonia's Hair Fashions in, <laughs> uh, on Staten Island. Uh, for a nice Sunday afternoon. Ed Lockman was our DP who went on to do some great, you know, professional camera work. And uh, we got a, uh, it was a bouncer from one of the many, you know, nightclubs I frequented who was like a Navy power lifter. So he was our leather face. And uh, we took over Sonia's hair fashions. I gave myself a cameo as the hitchhiker because now, the Hitchhiker really freaked me out from uh, the original Texas Chainsaw. Anyway, we shot, we spent a day shooting the Texas Chainsaw Manicure. When it finally came out, you know, we basically cobbled it together. Woman goes into the beauty parlor, gets her hair done, sitting under the dryer. And uh, we ended up getting, I don't know if you guys remember, Cookie Mueller. Yeah. Oh, my God, of God, course. Cookie Mueller yeah. was our beautician. That's amazing. Audience, that is like legit a cult film icon. And in, in, in yes. a future episode, I think Michael and I yes. will have to do an idol worship Cookie Mueller episode because oh, yeah. absolutely. A, a lot of people know her best from the John Waters movies, but she was a New York underground fixture, yes. also an author of incredible yes. books. So yes. we'll, we'll, we'll do that another time. But how cool that you got Cookie yeah. in this movie. Cookie is our beautician. And uh. she goes, you know, you want anything else? And, you know, the lady's under the dryer. She goes, yeah, I think I'll have a manicure. And Cookie goes, manicure. And then, you know, <laughs> you go cut to the back of the shop. You hear the chainsaw start. Of course, it's the sliding silver door, uh, which every be right. every beauty parlor must have. And uh, the door slides open and out comes Leatherface with a smoking <laughs> chainsaw. Our poor lady is under the dryer and she's screaming as Leatherface uh, approaches her. And, uh, and then he starts sawing on her hands and she's screaming and the saw and screaming. She passes out from, from terror and... Um, and then Cookie revives her with a few slaps to the cheek. She goes, oh, no, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> She's got a fabulous manicure. <laughs> so um, then we cut to, she goes out to the pickup truck, and there's me as the hitchhiker behind the wheel of the pickup truck, and this is my wife. And uh, she comes out and she goes, look, honey, I got the best manicure ever. And I look at her and I go, hey, that's great, honey. We should celebrate with some head cheese. <laughs> and I had bought some head cheese at the supermarket, which isn't really dramatic looking, but you know, if you know what's in it, it's right. scary. Right. And uh, so I, I held up, and even, in one take, I even like uh, licked the head cheese, which I don't recommend. And uh, that was it. Um, wow. I tried to sell it to uh, Saturday Night Live, to Fridays, another kind of funny show back then. Everybody had a reason that they didn't want it. Either there was no names in it, there was too long, it was... Uh, video, not film. I don't know all these different things, but anyway, so I ended up just basically eating it and uh, going to work as a waiter <laughs> to try it out yeah. because I was getting these dunning calls from uh, you know from Broadway Video, which was uh, you know the Saturday Night Live video place that had right. originally invited us in and thought we thought oh this could all be for free, and then they presented the bill, which was staggering, and um, and so I started waiting tables. Uh, just to uh, try to, you know, send a few dollars to uh, Lauren Michaels and company. Um, and then, uh, I, you know, as a freelance writer, I got a job uh, covering the making of 2010 A Space Odyssey, 
I, wow. and I got a junket, you know, so I got flown to, uh, from uh, New York to LA, um, by MGM, you know, tour of the set. I talked to Peter Hyams and some of the cast people and, you know, I had a great time. Well, during the course of that, I had brought along a copy, a VHS copy. This is 1984 of the Chainsaw Manicure. And, um, I had dinner with a friend of mine who was a, a, a prep school buddy who had already gone on to, to, to write Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, wow. So wow. this was like the, you know, the first you know, big success out of the gate of our class and everything. Anyway, he and his wife invited me over for dinner, and I brought along the chainsaw manicure to amuse them. And, um, and so I you know, put it on. And you know, my buddy, his name is Peter Seaman believe it or not. And, uh, <laughs> he, he loved the manicure. And he said, you know, uh, my writing partner and I have an office right across the hall from Toby Hooper over at Paramount. I think wow. Toby at the time was doing poltergeist. Mm. And uh, so my friend Pete said, uh, you know, if you leave me a copy of the manicure, I will walk it across the hall and show it to Toby. Well, I was already, I, I just thought I, I have sinned for even making this thing. I had, you know, a vision and boy, have I gotten trampled for it. Uh, you know, but I became a good waiter. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so I said, sure, you know, why don't you take it across? It wouldn't it be cool if Toby saw it, that would be amazing. And wouldn't it be cool if he liked it? That's right. really all I could, you know, imagine coming out of that. And, um, so I went back to the, to New York city. Uh, my buddy also gave me Toby's home number, which he purloined out of uh, Tobe's secretary. And, uh, and he said, why don't you call Toby in about 10 days and, you know, just, you know, see if he liked to watch the manicure. And I said, OK, sure. So 10 days went by and I called up Toby and uh, and he answered the phone, which I later found out was miraculous. He never answered his own phone, but he, you know, hello. And I said, <laughs> wow. uh, yes, hi, Toby. It's it's uh, it's Bill Mosley. Oh, I said, uh, yeah, I did the uh, I did the manicure uh, chainsaw <laughs> manicure. And he goes. Oh, hell yeah. I love the manicure, Bill. I said, oh, great. <laughs> said, now, who, who played the hitchhiker? And I said, well, uh, that, uh, that was me. And he said, well, hell, if I ever do a do a sequel, I'll keep you in mind. And wow. I went, whoa, wow, that's great. Good. He said, yeah, now, you know, stay in touch. So uh, that was the last I heard from Toby for two years. <laughs> you know, wild. I think I sent him a postcard. Hey, you know, good. To, you know, he gave me his address or an, an address. I've uh, never heard another peep out of it for two years. And uh, in the uh, very early part of 1986, one night in my apartment in New York, Upper West Side, phone rang, answered it, and it was a guy saying his name was Kit Carson. And uh, I said, uh, you know, it was almost like, who is this really? I could tell <laughs> it was long distance because back then the phone sizzled a little bit. You know, you knew it was long distance. Yeah. And, uh, Anyway, he said, uh, you know, uh, I just want to want to get your address because I want to send you a copy of uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. And I was like, geez, I mean, this, you know, I, I, I was right on the verge of saying, are you punking me? I mean, it wasn't <laughs> bad, but, uh, you know, so I gave him my address. I mean, I figured, yeah, it's long distance. I mean, yeah, this is just too weird. So a couple of days later, the, the script arrived and uh, I was told to look at the part of Chop Top. And uh, actually, the original name of the character was Hippie. Ah. And then I think I'd somehow I had heard, and I don't know if I ever corroborated it, but I had heard that then the character was called uh, Platehead, but that there was some Masters of the Universe character. So there was a copyright problem. So they settled on Chop Top. 
uh, you know, because of the plate, not yeah. because of the car. And everybody, you know, I, I've got a license plate that says Chop Top on it. And people look at it because that's, of course, refers to a kind of car here. Right. Uh, but uh, anyway, so I read the script. I looked at the part of Chop Top. I thought, gee, that's a big part. And uh, I remember calling Kit back and I said, uh, you know, hey, I read it. It's hilarious. I, I love it. I mean, it's it's great. And he goes, oh, good. I'm so glad you so glad you liked it. Uh, so uh, you'll, you'll be hearing from us. And I'm like, whoa, what is going on here? So a couple of days later, I got a call from somebody in uh, the Canon Films legal department saying, uh, do you have an agent or do you want to negotiate your own contract? And it's like, what? Wow. Wow. And, and I used one of my, my favorite phrases, which has really helped me out my whole life, which is, let me get back to you. <laughs> and, uh, and I had met an agent from William Morris at a Christmas party like a month earlier, Risa Shapiro. And uh, so I called her up, you know, and the next day and said, hey, you know, would you negotiate a contract for me? And of course, you know, an agent, yeah, it's free. good, sure, absolutely. So, uh, and she said, sure. And I gave her the number of the person at the legal Canon Films part. And uh, she and she called me the next day or later that day, whatever it was, and said, uh, well, I've got some good news and some bad news. And I said, well, what's the good news? She said, well, they want you to play this character, Chop Top, uh, in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. And I was like, wow, that's, that's unbelievable. Yeah. And, she, and I said, well, what's, what's the bad news? And she said, well, yeah, they're only going to pay you scale. And I was a member of the Screen Actors Guild, uh, you know, from some commercials I'd done and everything. And so I said, what at scale. Now, as a freelance writer in New York, I was probably averaging maybe $250 to $300 a week. And uh, and she said, well, I don't know. I think it's like $1,700 a week. I was like, oh, my God. Are you kidding me? Oh. And she said, well, yeah. But then I said, that's good. And she goes, well, yeah, but... They said because of the, the part, need, you have to have prosthetics on your head. They, uh, they want you to shave your head. And I went, okay. And she said, so I told them you were a working actor, and if you shaved your head, you wouldn't get work. So they've agreed to pay you $5,000 to shave your head. I was wow. like, oh, my God, that's the bad news. <laughs> so that is a long way. That's a yeah. long story. But that's, that's how it happened. That's how I ended up you know, going to Austin and doing this job. That's amazing. Yeah, Bill, I have to tell you that one of the great privileges of um, doing what Michael and I do, but before the podcast as well as now the podcast, is getting to meet iconic people from these cult movies uh, that we love and we get to hear their origin stories. And I think that might be the most impressive, to me at least, because yeah. first of all, we're a show about fans. This is a, a, a cult movie podcast that's really about people's response to these films. So as much as we're interested in interviewing the performers and the directors and things, we really want to talk to people who were touched by these films. So the fact that you, as a filmmaker and performer, were inspired enough by the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre to make, let's face it, basically a Peaches Christ movie. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, it sounds like one of my stage shows, right? The Texas Chainsaw right. Massacre. It does. Uh, it, yeah, it, 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 it's so, it, it is like, 
it's a fantasy, right? It's a dream. This this story that you just laid out for us, it's it's really amazing. And just how all the little pieces came together with, with knowing someone who went on to become successful enough to have an office across from Toby Hooper's and to live in an era where, you know, people had phone numbers and addresses that you could communicate with. That that someone told you they're putting a script in the mail and and you got a script in the mail in New York City, you know. And and the other part of the story that I love is like, for all you um, fledgling show business people, th- this is why you have agents, right? right. We, we as creative people are our own worst enemy when it comes to um, negotiating on our own behalf, because we just want to work. We just want to do things. Um, but but having someone represent you, you know, means um, you, you're probably going to end up making more money. So you end up doing the movie, which becomes, in my mind, I think one of those sequels that stands alone as its own great piece of work. And, and in the horror um, genre, there are these movies that are so iconic. And I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of those. It is a classic. It's considered one of, you know, by, 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 by outside of the genre, one of the greatest films ever made. I think Toby Hooper is a genius. And I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre is such a brilliant film. And I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is its own film with its own perspective. And it's a fan favorite. It's one It's one of my favorite movies yeah. ever made. And I think Evil Dead has done this well, you know, where Evil Dead 2, I think Dead by Dawn, it, it is very much its own film. It's its own thing. But, but a lot of sequels don't land this way. And so here you are, a fan, and you're going to take on this big, iconic part, and you're shooting it. And I guess the next question is, what was it like, you know, actually getting into the makeup and being on set and, and, and being directed by Toby Hooper, you know, co-starring with Dennis Hopper? Well, it was a mind blower because, as I say, I was actually, you know, I certainly had acted in college and, um, you know, I was a member of the Screen Actors Guild, but I wasn't doing it on a daily basis. Uh, I grew up outside of Chicago in the 50s and 60s. My dad was an executive for a company that makes uh, tank cars and different kinds of railroad cars for freight trains and pipelines. And you know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the idea of acting as a you know vocation was really not part of <laughs> not part of our conversation. Right. Dad was, you know, in two wars and football. He was an All-American football player, you know, so. You know, I got all that stuff, but uh, that was that did not include being an actor. It was hard enough. I was an English major in college, so but it was hard enough that I was a freelance writer. That already seemed <laughs> pretty like yeah. The idea that I would actually you know be able to do this for a living was pretty amazing. I mean, literally when I heard that seventeen hundred a week, you know, it was like not only was it a lot more money than I was making as a freelance writer, but it was also like you know. It, it was like a living. It was like, wow. I mean, yeah. that's like, you know, grown up money. And it uh, wasn't just struggling artists. You know, I, I lived in New York because I, my rent on the Upper West Side was $280 a month. I mean, that's wow. really wow. more than I would like to say my talent kept me there. But that's really what kept me in New York was uh, a cheap rent. Yeah. So I was overjoyed to actually make the money I made. And it really just gave me a whole new, you know, a whole new perspective on, you know, acting. Uh, you know, I like to describe it as, you know, running away to join the circus and they let you stay, you know, and actually you do well by being in the circus. You, it turns out the circus 
was waiting for you. And uh, that to me was just uh, really the, the greatest part of it. I do remember I went down to meet with Tom Savini. I, I called his makeup shop, uh, you know, the House of Pain. You know, they obviously they shaved my head and put me into, uh, you know, a plaster head mold literally within 30 minutes of me meeting Tom and, and his henchmen. And, um, and, you know, so I had to learn I'd never had a head mold before. I had to learn literally plaster of Paris for 30 minutes on your head so you can only breathe through your nose. And I, you know, there's kind of a panic that can set in for some for some people. Uh, so I had to learn how to do that. I just kind of imagined I was scuba diving and just kind of went into a meditative state until they cracked the thing off my head. They gave me a body mold as well because they used my head and body mold to make the Muppet. Oh, wow. Nubbins, uh, the hitchhiker. Ah. Um, so I was, I was, you know, under a lot of, you know, I had been abducted by aliens and was being probed, <laughs> tested, <laughs> tested somewhere. Once I got my head mold and my head shaved, I had an, an Omni assignment which was to go up to Palo Alto, California, drive down Route 1 to Big Sur and interview Linus Pauling, who won two unshared Nobel Prizes and, you know, and was considered really the father of orthomolecular medicine, meaning he was Mr. Vitamins. Mega doses, C, E, B, A, you know, you name it, you know, and obviously an erudite guy. And it was so funny because I showed up at his house to interview him Um uh, with my head shaved. And uh, I had borrowed a car from my brother who lived in Palo Alto that had a sunroof. And, you know, while driving down under the sun to, you know, meet Linus Pauling, my my head got sunburned. Oh, no. And, um, and I ended up uh, uh, parking. Linus lived down, right down on the water in Big Sur and had about a half a mile driveway. And so I stopped the car. I got out to try to open the gates and managed to lock the door of the car so that I couldn't get in even, you know, even though I'd opened the gate or whatever it was, you know, the car was standing there. So I remember walking, you know, quarter, let's say a quarter mile downhill to Linus Pauling's house, knocking on the door, Linus Pauling, you know, a god among scientists, <laughs> um, opens the door, goes, yes. And I said, uh, can I borrow a coat hanger? <laughs> it was my first kind of move as Chop Top. <laughs> I was asking wow. Linus Pauling for a coat hanger, and he gave me one, and I went all the way back up, and Jimmy opened the car and drove down and ended up interviewing him about orthomolecular medicine and icosahedral quasi-crystals, <laughs> you know, which you can still read in Omni magazine. It's there, you know, Linus Pauling interview. But uh, then I went back to Austin and I got the makeup, you know, they gave me a tooth mold. So I had my teeth and, you know, the plate, the plate was actually molded against my bust. It was made out of sterling silver, very thin, but it had to be pliable. Tom Savini made it out of sterling silver. Finally, I was in full makeup, and I think probably in costume as well. The costume person was Toby Hooper's then wife, Karen. Karen Hooper was our wardrobe person, mistress. And um, so I'm, there I am sitting in a chair. Tom Savini is you know, finishing touches on me, and I finally meet Toby Hooper. I've never met him before. Mm. This is before we started shooting and, and in comes Toby Hooper, you know, I, I knew what he looked like and he, uh, you know, he had a cigar and clenched between his teeth. He had a Dr. Pepper and he had a box of Cuban cigars under one arm and he greeted Tom. I guess they were pals and he handed Tom a gift of a box of Cuban cigars, which back in 86 was still illegal. Yeah. And, um, 
And Tom said, you know, thanks. They had a little chit chat. I'm still, I'm sitting in the chair, like bug eyed. And uh, Tom goes, well, here's Chop Top. And Toby goes, huh? <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and Tom says, well, what do you think? And he goes, well, maybe, uh, maybe some more plus on the plate. And Tom goes, uh, clear or amber? And Toby goes, amber. And then walks away. And I just thought, this is going to be amazing. <laughs> that blew my mind. Yeah. Clear amber, you know, amber, you know, and off he went. And I was like, okay, well, I am fired up. I can also say that uh, for the first, uh, you know, we had a scene to do. We were going to do it. It was the first scene I did was was running with Nubbins and, uh, and the cook through the tunnels. The cook and I run up and I've got the Muppet. We got in full costume and makeup. My makeup took about three and a half hours to apply and an hour and a half to get off. It was about an hour drive from the makeup shop out to the location, the Texas Battleland. The first 10 days, they never got to us. Wow. So it was wow. me, Bill Johnson, and Jim Seedow were sitting in the little trailer, like a little cubby trailer, uh, playing gin rummy. And I still have notebooks with, you know, like three columns with all of our scores. <laughs> <laughs> and they never got to us. Uh, so we would, you know, be in costume and makeup, long trips back and forth, and then just hang out on the set, uh, waiting to be called and never got called. And finally, literally after about 10 or 12 days, uh, we finally got our first, you know, call. That was my first action was running through the corridor with nubbins. I think I have some outtakes. The publicist was a guy named Scott Holton. And Scott had like all kinds of videotapes and, you know, of course, everything was video back then. But I think I still have some outtakes from that scene uh, somewhere in the garage in a spiderweb box. Um, <laughs> the first time I, I was so excited to finally work and act, I came running down, you know, woo -hoo -hoo, with nubbins and flapping my arms. And when I when I went to stop, my feet skidded out from under me and I fell flat on my butt. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, and uh, I I've learned I learned from like the school of very low budget filming. If they don't say cut, just get up and keep going. <laughs> so, right. But they did say cut. You know, I was like clambering up and making it part <laughs> of my deal. But uh, that was that was, you know, that was day one. Finally. That's wild. Uh, now, Bill, I want to ask you as sort of an extension of what Peaches brought up earlier about legacy, because. When we talk to a lot of people who were involved in cult films, one of the questions that comes up when you're making these kind of movies is, did you ever suspect 30, 40 years later, you would be still talking about this movie? But this is a kind of different circumstance because you were brought to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 already as a fan of a movie that a decade prior had made such a big impact on the zeitgeist. So there has to be a little bit of a different perspective heading into a movie like this. And when you were making a film, when you were making this film, was that in the back of your mind? Like, we're now part of this pop culture narrative? Or do you not have time to think about that on a set that's moving like that? You know, I didn't really think of it that in those terms. When I first saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it was in the combat zone of Boston on a Sunday afternoon on the tail end of a double bill with Enter the Dragon. That's a double feature. Crowd yelling, you know, hey, Bruce Lee, kick his ass. You know, it's like a <laughs> funky crowd. The old Paramount Theater in the combat zone, like the Times Square of Boston, basically. And I was so fascinated just by the title of the movie. I just thought, wow, the Texas Chainsaw, what the hell is that? And when I was in college, I, uh, with my, my, my buddy, Gary Lucas, um, 
I used to run a film series called Things That Go Bump in the Night. So every Tuesday at midnight at Yale University, you know, uh, we would uh, show, you know, Carnival of Souls and Japanese gaijin movies and hammer films and all kinds of stuff. You know, and my favorite, uh, The Brain That Wouldn't Die. Oh, so good. <laughs> uh, so, you know, fast forward to, you know, me working as the secretary to uh, the president of a swimming pool company in North Billerica, Massachusetts, driving around doing swimming pool related errands and going through the trees in North Billerica and seeing the marquee of a closed drive-in theater. And on that marquee was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I was just like, what the hell is that? Because <laughs> as a horror fan, I was like, those are some very powerful ingredients. Yeah. When I ended up seeing it, everybody was in a good mood from that Enter the Dragon. I'd never seen the Kung Fu thing. And then the first opening shots of that kind of slow strobe with the melted body and the tortured violin strings, like, yeah. you know, you see this flash of like a dead body. It was like the air went out of the room. I mean, everybody was freaked out. And I could not get a breath throughout the whole movie. Sometimes with movies, if you're, you know, if you're scared and you're saying it's only a movie, you know, you can see a mic shadow or you can see a zipper or somebody does something stupid and you go, oh, okay, all right, just a movie. I could never find that. And uh, that, it freaked me out so much that I ended up uh, over the next couple of years seeing it as many times as I could. And this was before VHS. So you had to like find it in the theater. Freaked me out so much that I figured if I could find it and see it so many times, it would become familiar and I wouldn't be so scared. But it just made it worse. <laughs> so really, when I made the Texas Chainsaw Manicure, I had all of that in me. And when I heard those words and made that little short, that was the way that I kind of was trying to exorcise how freaked out I was about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It was the most powerful movie I've ever seen. What really freaked me out was when I was talking to Toby Hooper on the set of Chainsaw 2, I was saying, yeah, well, you know, boy, that, that completely freaked me out, that, that, you know, the original. And he goes, that was a comedy. <laughs> he thought of that as a comedy. Now, I guess if you look at it as a comedy, you can see that there's some funny stuff with Franklin and, you know, there's different things that I guess are comedic in a way. Uh, but so, I, I thought, oh, my God, if he thinks that's a comedy, this is some very dark stuff. <laughs> I did not think of it as a comedy. You absolutely just uh, went into what I was going to bring up, which is exactly that. Like, like as a huge, huge fan, I had a very similar reaction to the movie that you did um, as a kid who saw it at a slumber party at like one of those things where you're with a bunch of kids and somehow one of us got our hands on that VHS and we were very young to watch it. And I mean, talk about terrified. None of us were anything but just terrified watching that movie, but because we were young and it was a group of uh, boys trying to look tough or cool, none of us said to turn it off, you know, so we're all watching it, like pissing our sleeping bags. And um, I ended up buying it and loving it, but very much had the same reaction you did where I would still be scared, you know, whereas other films of the era, other classics, including Poltergeist, you know, I could watch over and over and over and find a lot of joy and fun and, you know, really, I wasn't as scared. And so to find out years later with many interviews, especially that fantastic documentary that they did on one of the Blu-rays that Jim Koontz worked on, where Toby Hooper talks about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre being a comedy. And I'm like, 
what? I get that I don't like things that are humorless. So that's one reason I probably connected so well to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But in my mind, it was a straight up horror movie, almost cinema verite, like just so terrifying, such like almost a documentary. But it leads me to my question, which is in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, I think Toby got to put the comedy more forward. And so the performances, and especially your performance, you in particular get to carry and deliver a lot of the memorable comedy. Well, even the poster, you know, doing the Breakfast Club sort of um, parody, you know, told you this is tongue in cheek. They're taking the piss here. And I wonder, did you and Toby talk a lot about that? Your performance is so great. It's so memorable. I remember when I saw it, that Sonny Bono wig, you know, line, which is kind of at the beginning of the film, me going like, oh shit, this is not the movie I thought it was going to be, you know, because, you know, it's fucking hilarious. I'll give you an example of of working with Tobe. Um, We were doing the, uh, that, the radio station scene uh, where there was a bunch of improvising every day on the set, literally throughout the whole shoot, we would get different colored pages that were new material that Kid had written the night before. Oh, wow. And so, uh, yeah, it was amazing. And, and it's amazing how many colors there are in the world. <laughs> I mean, you would get cranberry and wheat straw and, you know, all these, not just your basic colors. And uh, there was a lot of improvising, a lot of winging it. I'm pounding LG, you know. LG mm-hmm. has come in, he's interrupted me. You know, I'm, I'm beating him on the head with a claw hammer. And it was so funny because it was a very small, close set. And it was very hot. Of course, that was back in the day of like film and, you know, hot lights and the whole deal. Poor LG, Lou Perryman, RIP, is lying there. Tom Savini is right next to him, right off camera, on his knees with a uh, gallon of blood, stage blood and a pump. There's a tube that goes up LG's pant leg, I think goes up behind his shirt through his hair and kind of ends right at the hairline so that, you know, he can, you know, they you can spray the blood on his face. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I have my claw hammer. And so, you know, we're, you know, ready action. You know, so I'm like pounding away and I'm making stuff up like a one and a two, you know, Lawrence Welk, <laughs> I'm doing like Sergeant Rock comic books, like, uh, you know, you know, Ho Chi Minh and just doing all kinds of crazy <laughs> Sometimes Toby would yell cut. I'm in the middle of it and, and uh, I, I'd look and the hammer would be bent like a cloverleaf because the hammer was basically just foam rubber with a uh, with a coat hanger inside it just to kind of keep it in one shape. So if I'm wailing away too much, you know, it can kind of bend. So that, you know, so, okay. So that blew a couple of takes. And each time, of course, we'd have to clean LG up and Tom Savini would, you know, be sitting there pumping blood and we have to clean all that up and put more blood in his pump. And the whole deal is going on. Finally, we get to about take 12 and it's hot in there and close and, you know, and, um, and I finally, I'm, I'm not irritated, but I'm a little, you know, kind of like what's going on here. And I remember looking at Tobe and I'd say, I said that Toby, you know, because I think with take 12, he goes, yeah, yeah, that was great. Yeah, uh, let's let's just do one more. And uh, so I, I look at Toby and I go, Toby, am I doing something wrong? And he looks at me and he goes, hell no, Bill. I'm just having fun watching. <laughs> that was like probably the most encouraging words I've ever heard from any director in my entire career. <laughs> I'm just having fun watching you. So then you just like, okay, you know, it's on. So I, you know, that was, that was so much fun. That's like permission granted. 
Yes. If you're entertaining, I mean, you know, heck with a camera. I'm just, you know, I'm here as a human witnessing this thing. It's just making me so happy. What I love about that story, too, is it was clear that he loved watching you do what you do. And in the creation of this character, you uh, had a great impact on a whole generation of horror fans. And it, you know, was sort of the beginning of this very prolific career where you've been in all of these movies that people keep gravitating towards. But Chop Chop, I, I know that you, uh, like you said, that's your license plate. You have performed in bands under the Chop Top name. Chop Top follows you in a good way, I assume, because you've embraced that character. But what's the trajectory been like living with this character and, and the fan interactions all these years? I, I just love it. I mean, Chop Top's never far away from me. You know, when people ask me, what's your favorite role? Uh, you know, always Chop Top, first love. I look at some of the characters, I some of the roles I've gotten. Otis Driftwood. I got that because uh, I met Rob Zombie at a in-house horror award show at Universal Studios in October of 1999. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, the MC of the show oh, made wow. up as Chop Top, you know, wearing like a kind of a ragged tuxedo. And I had my, you know, I brought along my coat hanger and I had a friend named Todd Bates who uh, loved Chop Top and could do the makeup. So I was there introducing these different horror awards recipients. It was in-house and Rob Zombie was one of the recipients because MCA Records, I think that was his label at the time, part of the Universal family. I remember going, and here he is, Rob Zombie. And uh, Rob comes out. And he, he's stunned because he looks at me and he goes, if you would have told me that Chop Top was here, I would have said you're crazy. <laughs> I met him backstage afterwards. And it turns out he said he was backstage listening to me and thinking, yeah, that guy's doing a decent Chop Top. <laughs> and then he comes out and it's like, holy shit, it's Chop Top. And uh, within a month, uh, his manager at the time uh, sent me a copy of uh, House of a Thousand Corpses and said, you know, Rob would like you to look at the part of Otis Driftwood. So thank you, Chop Top. You know, and you mentioned my music career with Buckethead, Corn Bugs, you know, doing a lot of Chop Top stuff. And, you know, I was just actually this weekend, I was in Bangor, Maine at a uh, comic and toy convention. And, uh, you know, with all the, the fans that, that I see at these different conventions, pretty much half of them are Chop Top fans, which is amazing because, you know, Chop Top was one and done 35 years ago this year. And of course, you know, Otis Driftwood and Johnny from Night of the Living Dead and Luigi from Repo and now the governor, you know, and all this stuff. It's a lot of different characters, but, uh, you know, Chop Top. Uh, yeah. you know, I, I owe my whole career to Chop Top, so I I, I love him dearly. <laughs> I have uh, in my office only one one uh, eight by ten hanging up, and it's an autographed Chop Top from you that I got at a I think Midsummer Scream or one of the conventions. And uh, you know, I uh, I met you as Peaches when we did the Elvira Horror Hunt show that I co-hosted with Elvira a few years ago, and I remember being like very starstruck and very excited that you were going to be there, and it's because. That character, especially in the the horror canon, especially for those of us who were were kids, teenagers in the eighties, you know, the, these you know your performances uh, really um, were so impactful. You know, we were consumers, and it was hard to consume. You had to you had to wait for a Fangoria magazine, and then you would devour it and and read everything you could, and then the movie would come out, and then you'd have to wait for it to come out on VHS. It wasn't immediate, you know. You'd you'd wait and wait and wait, and it would sometimes take months, and then maybe cable television. And so, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre two, and especially your performance 
and Caroline, the other guest on our show, and, and Dennis, of course, but like Caroline also, I think, you know, so colors the 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 excitement and the the frenzy of that film. And it is such a unique scream queen. And you are such a unique antagonist. It's such a great addition to the masked slasher, which you know, Leatherface covers quite well. Bill actually has shown us that he has with him the actual hanger, Chop Top's actual scratcher, head scratcher. Now, did you steal it or did they give it to you? I actually have the original costume. I have the head plate. Wow. I have the teeth. When I go to conventions, I'm always getting, uh, you know, and I'm inspiring artists. Beautiful. And actually over this weekend in, in Bangor, somebody made me a Chop Top sock puppet. Oh, wow. And they, I love it because they got the blue eyes right. Hey, yeah. my plate, you dog bit. <laughs> Stock puppet. Yes. I have no complaints. Fortunately, you know, if somebody shows up as chopped up, I'm, I'm thrilled. Um, the last day we shot, which was July 4th, noon, they, Canon Films literally pulled the plug. I remember I was in the, I didn't have a trailer. I was at like a little roomette. And I was in there and uh, there's a knock on my little door and I open it up and there's Karen Hooper with my costume. You know, the tie-dyed shirt, the bell-bottom pants, the sneakers, the vest, you know, the pins, a bunch of other stuff. And she's standing there and she goes, "Uh, well, I just wanted to give you this costume because, uh, you know, you did a great job or the movie's over or whatever. She's handing it to me. And I looked at it and I said, I would never wear any of this stuff. So uh, oh. thanks, but no thanks. Oh, no. Oh, oh wow. no. Oh. I turned it down. And 20 years later, so 15 years ago, Eric Lasher, RIP, who was the set photographer, said, I'll take it. And he took it. And 20 years ago or so, uh, he contacted me and said, look, I've got your costume and I really want to give it to you. Mm. And I said, thank you, because that was one of my, you know, life's big, big, big mistakes. And so uh, Eric gave it to me. And so I've done a bunch of photo ops uh, at some of these conventions since then in the real costume, which still fits. I have a great makeup artist who really is really good at Chop Top. She actually won, uh, you know, one season of FX on TV, Nora Hewitt. I mean, she's just fantastic. And uh, so she, whenever I get, you know, they say, look, we want you to do Chop Top. You know, that means shaving. That means, you know, really getting into it. But uh, I, I love it. I love that. Still chop top all these years later. It's lovely to know that you have your costume. And also, this is a weird, just a random thing. I realized when I made my movie All About Evil, my only feature film, I ended up working with Tom Richmond, who had shot you in House of a Thousand Corpses. And, right. you know, Tom Richmond, I think, is such a talented DP and such a lovely, lovely man. I got to see him in New York about a month ago. He's doing great. And now I get to tell Tom, oh, I got to speak with Bill. It's a small film world out Truly. there. Yeah. Well, Bill, we have had such a great time talking to you. I cannot thank you enough for sharing so many amazing stories. I feel like we could just, we could ask you a million more questions. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we, we we don't want to take up all of your time. So maybe maybe we'll have you back on the show sometime if that's all right. And, you know, I, we were talking to Caroline. I think for me, it's a dream. One of my favorite Midnight Mass shows when I was doing the live events and cinemas was when I did Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 and I did Peaches Christ as 
chop top. Uh, so oh. I, don't, I, I don't know if you've seen those photos. I will dig I them am. out. I'm okay. so okay. sorry. I, was, oh. I, I missed those. I those. will send them oh. to you. Well, it was kind of, it was a little while ago. So social media wasn't as big a thing. So when we release this episode, we'll release the peaches as chop top. Um, but, but that was a very memorable midnight mass because we did blood wrestling on stage and, <laughs> uh, and I slipped in the blood and actually fell so hard. It's the hardest fall in front of an audience I've ever had in drag. Um, it was a very iconic moment. And my head hit the stage where the plate was. Oh. Honestly, a righteous homage to Bill falling on that first day on set, right? You know, there you it go. Was all full yeah. Yeah. that's part of the character. Yes, you gotta, <laughs> you take your fall. Yeah, now I know. Now I know. Well, Bill, thank you again, and uh, we will talk to you soon. Yes, thank you so much. So I'm so glad because uh, you know I, I just I love peaches, especially I, I love your love of this movie because I have that same love for the genre for this movie. For all the work I've done, and when it, when people say, you know, I just I love you, and I go, thank you so much. I'm so happy you do because yeah. that makes me happy because you know I love doing this stuff. Right, it's so much fun. There's so many great stories, great characters. Uh, I really consider myself a very lucky guy. That was our conversation with the amazing and iconic Bill Mosley. You know, Peaches, one of my favorite things about Bill's uh, trajectory into his role of Chop Top is, as I mentioned in the intro of the episode, it began with fandom and his love of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And he makes this fan film, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I I have to tell you, I really want to see. Like, I am, I'm like obsessed with the idea of this. Uh, I, I want to know if he still has it. I may have to like harangue him by email to see if it's still out there because I love the idea. And like you said, it just sounds like one of your shows. It makes me <laughs> want to do, if we ever do a midnight mass screening of Texas Chainsaw 2, to call it The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know? Oh, Oh my God, you know what would be so amazing is let's follow up with Bill, find out if he has the movie, and do and see if you know we can do a double feature, you know, where we we open our show with the Texas Chainsaw Manicure. We'll bring Bill, we'll bring Caroline, we'll do a big celebration. Maybe, maybe we'll even bring back blood wrestling and see if I don't fall on my fucking ass. I mean, <laughs> when I tell you, Michael, that was the worst fall in the history of Peaches Falls on stage. And I love nothing more than drag queens falling. I think drag queens falling on stage is the best. And I actually Google it. I YouTube it. I have links to some amazing stuff that I, I save. Oh my God, so many good Jinx Monsoon falls that I watch on repeat. I share them with friends. This is definitely the best Peaches fall of all time. Not only did I slip in the blood and go sleep slamming down onto the stage but the audience later was like you bounced like oh my my, God. my body bounced off the stage it was so hard and then when I went to get up, what I didn't say is part of my chop top costume was a denim mini skirt. So I was wearing the tie dye shirt and I was wearing the fringe vest and the buttons and I had the plate in my head with a wig around it. But I was wearing a mini skirt because I had to make it peaches, you know, I'm not right. wearing bell bottoms. No way. I go to get up, my fucking skirt splits up oh, the entire no. middle. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Full-on crotch shot for the audience. I mean, the audience is dying. And I'm like a cartoon character trying to get my feet to grip the stage. But because of the blood, I'm just sliding all over the place. I ended up 
being so desperate that I made a blood snow angel, you know, face first. Was this at the bridge? Yeah, I was at the bridge. I, I could never do this at the Castro because there's a very expensive multi-million dollar organ under the stage. So whenever right. we uh, are performing at the Castro, I always keep in mind, um, okay, let's not get any liquids on the stage because they're going to seep down into the organ, you know. But, you know, in terms of drag queen perils and drag queen falls, one of the things I do appreciate is I feel like all of the venues you choose are kind of like these insane Rube Goldberg traps for drag queens anyway. <laughs> they are. That's true. When Peaches does shows at the Castro, usually the cast and crew have photo ops and signings upstairs on the mezzanine level, which there is yeah. a great grand staircase at the Castro. And in all of my years participating or coming to see these shows, I could not count the number of drag queens I've seen eat shit trying to climb those stairs in their heels. <laughs> so it's like... <laughs> and it's so worth it, especially if there's a video <laughs> camera around. I just, I love it. I remember once watching Hecklina fall. Oh my God. It, I, I play that memory back. I don't know why I get such joy out of it. I, I guess I am fucked up. You know how I said earlier in the podcast that horror fans were, were smarter people? I don't know that it means that we're better people or nicer people. I don't know, maybe we're a little bit wicked. But we're definitely smarter. <laughs> okay, so there you go. Um, but yeah, that was such a lovely episode. Oh my God. Thank you so much, dear listeners, for supporting the Midnight Mass podcast because with you um, out there listening, it creates this scenario where I get to join Michael on this journey where we get to meet these people who mean so much to us and, and then introduce them to you. And, you know, we are actually about to launch a Patreon very soon. Michael and I are working on it. We're not going to do this half-assed. We're going to make it good. So we're working on that because in order for the podcast to keep going, Michael and I were running out of funds. We've we've invested our own you know money and resources into this show, and and um, it's not sustainable. So we're hoping that we've put out enough content now that you enjoy it and want to support us and see more episodes be made in the future. We don't have it ready to go yet, but I'm just putting it out there that like this is a great example of what your support will go to help us create. We love a coming attraction at Midnight Mass, and. What a better tease, right? Yeah, exactly. And so if you're sitting at home reading the great works of literature while watching the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, it means you're smart first and foremost, but also that you're one of the children of the podcorn now. <laughs> <laughs> Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production. <laughs>